Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I want to start with a picture today. This is a picture of an African Cape buffalo being attacked by a lion. Lions hunt by stealth and by surprise. They are not particularly fast. Most of the prey that they go after can actually outrun them. Even little warthogs can outrun lions. You wouldn't think that, but that's the case. So they hunt from at least a couple methods. One is to stalk from cover to cover, getting closer and closer to their prey, where finally they can jump out with a burst of speed at the end and uh, do something like that. The second method is to find a bush or some kind of cover close to something that the prey needs, like a watering hole or something like that. And while they wait, they will literally catch up on sleep. They'll do, you know, they'll just hang out until their prey comes to water and then they will pounce. With either tactic, they almost always attack their victims from behind. And the prey is unaware. And so they circle around and they jump onto a victim's back or the flanks and they drag it to the ground. Now, the thing is that a, a Cape buffalo like this outweighs a lion by a good six, eight hundred pounds. But if a buffalo like this is singled out, and that's the important part, if it's singled out, it doesn't stand a chance. The thing that you cannot see in this picture is what's around the picture, right? And what's around the picture most surely is either dozens or maybe even hundreds of other African Cape buffalo who are watching this go down. We're talking about how to do nothing in the first verses of chapter 6. Uh, Paul talks about relationships in this book of Galatians. In verse 1, he says, uh, here's how you relate to somebody who's caught in a sin. Um, Verse 2, here's how you relate to somebody who's burdened down and suffering. Verses 3 to 5, here's how you relate with peers and people to whom you tend to compare yourself. In verses 6 to 7, here's how you relate with your teachers or with people that you look up to. In verses 9 to 10, here's how you relate to your neighbors, the people that sit in the pew right next to you in the household of faith. And it's very sobering, this text, because Paul assumes that if you're a Christian, you're going to have all kinds of problems relationally. And that's what he's addressing. Verse 1, you're going to fall into sin or somebody else is going to fall into sin that you know. Verse 2, there are going to be sufferings and troubles that come your way. Everybody's going to be burdened down at some point. Verses 3 to 5, there's going to be jealousy and comparisons in your relationships, even the ones that are really good. Verses 6 to 9, there will be difficulties with uh, authority figures in your life that maybe make decisions that you don't necessarily agree with. And one thing right away that we see is how truthful... Christianity is. Because religions, other paradigms, other worldviews approach this differently. They say, are things difficult in your life? 
Are things difficult relationally? Then take this pill or pray these words or give these things or follow this path or drink this Kool-Aid and all of those difficulties will go away and you'll be fine. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says exactly the opposite. It tells you the truth. It says there will absolutely be a constant stream of difficult and trouble that will always come your way. But the difference is when you get the gospel, you will be like a big rock that will be cemented in the middle of that stream and unmoved, even though the stream continues to move. And so Paul is very forthright and upfront about relationships and their difficulties here. And in verse 1 and 2, that's where we're going to spend the next two weeks. Uh, Verse 1, we're going to tackle today. And if you're following along in your bulletin, we're only going to go about halfway down the page. So don't get anxious, okay? All right? And we'll continue. We'll fill out the bottom page of the page next week. And... um, uh, we had a little difficulty with computers this week, so I we don't have any fill-in-the-blanks on the screen, so I will try to do my best to accent right the, the fill-in-the-blanks for you type A type kind of people or uh, whatever you are, yeah, that need to fill out the thing, right? Okay, so here's the first blank. Our relationships need both truth and grace. Both truth and grace. The gospel, of course, uh, says... Unlike any other religion, it says this, that you are more wicked than you ever dare believe. That's the truth. You have rebelled against God. But at the same time, you are more loved than you would ever hope because of what Jesus has done for you. And that's grace. And the Apostle John, when he writes his gospel, in the very first chapter, he tells us very plainly that Jesus came in these two things simultaneously at the same time. Jesus came living on the earth full of grace and truth. He was equally both. When somebody needed truth, Jesus gave it to them. When somebody needed grace, he gave it to them. And he always knew what a person needed and how much of each one to give a person. That's not the case with us. We usually gravitate to one end of the spectrum or another. Some of us are blunt truth tellers. You know, we have to hand out band-aids before we talk to people because the truth hurts, right? Some of us are on the other end of the spectrum and we are cowardly conflict avoiders. We are peace at all costs. I'm going to tell you whatever you think uh, or I think you need to hear so that we can just all get along. And so... Uh, typically, we either overdo truth or we overdo grace, depending on what our personality is. But both ends of that spectrum cause problems relationally. And Jesus comes along and he says, here's how you navigate relationships. You are both. You try to be both. And we have so much to learn here. And Paul kind of echoes this idea. In verse 1, he's going to tell us how to do truth. And in verse 2, he's going to tell us how to do Grace. Those are the next blanks, by the way. Um, So how to do truth as I relate to other believers. And then verse 2, how to do grace in my relationships with other believers. And let's tackle verse 1. And I want to point you back to this picture. And the question is, what should happen when I see a fellow believer who is like this African Cape Buffalo and getting taken down from behind? What if... There's somebody that I know in the pew around me 
And they're the ones being singled out and they're in the grip of sin. What should happen? Now, from ground already covered a couple weeks ago, uh, we kind of talked about that we naturally either tend to provoke or envy in our relationships. Uh, Not in all of them, but as a general rule, what we are constantly doing is we're getting out scales and we're weighing our relationship to other people. And we either operate from a superior uh, position where we would, in this case, if somebody was caught, we would say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. So glad I didn't fall into that sin. Okay? And we would be superior. Or we would come from an envious position, a beneath position, and we would maybe, if we're younger in the faith, maybe we would see somebody living a sinful life and ourselves, we don't realize what that really means. And maybe we're even envious of that sinful life. But those of us who have been down the road a little bit in the Christian life understand how dangerous sin is and how we can get caught. And maybe we're operating in the envy side because we, uh, we crave this person's relationship to us so much that we're afraid to go to them and point their failure out. Right? We are envious of this, their position. We use this friendship that we have to some of our work to feed our ego and our worth and our value and we don't want to do anything to damage that relationship and so we can't risk losing their friendship so we don't go to them. Paul starts out this verse with one word, brother. Brother. Brothers, he says, who know that they are sons of God and that's that phrase is packed with stuff. That comes from a sermon when we were in chapter 3. I'll give you that if you if you want to come up to me later. But brothers who know that they are sons of God operate in a certain way when they see this happen. And they won't ignore a situation. They are willing to confront. And they confront with a balance of truth and grace. And so today we're just going to stay on the truth side and we're going to talk about how to do truth. How do I go to a brother when I see them in this situation or a sister when they are getting caught and tell them the truth? And so uh, the next blank is how to do truth, not afraid to confront. Brothers who know that they are sons of God are not afraid to confront. They're not afraid to get involved. And so let's look at some of the words, the individual single words in this first verse, and they will help us because they will help us answer natural questions that we would have as to how to navigate this scenario. And it will put some nice parameters on what we are supposed to do. The first word is the word caught. Caught. Confront those who are caught. And it answers the question, when should I go? When should I go to somebody? Answer, when they are caught. Now, this isn't anybody that we see sinning in any way. We, we should not be people who are quick to criticize other people or to go and, and dig into other people's lives and tell them off. First uh, Peter says, love covers over a multitude of sin. So let's start with a lot of love before we start confronting people, okay? But the first question is, the word caught gives us some ideas of how to go about this. It means to be surprised or unaware. And maybe a good picture besides this one would be a picture of a fish getting caught in a net. 
It's swimming around, unaware, and all of a sudden it's in a net, caught, can't do a thing. And so that gives us some questions that we might be able to ask. The first one is, is there a pattern that is going on in this person's life? Has some sin crept in? Has it surrounded them like a net would? Has it gained the upper hand like like a predator would? Is there a habit of sinful behavior that the person will not be able to overcome unless there's outside intervention? Okay, that's the first question. Number two, are they unaware? Are they caught? That's what the word means. There could be a pattern in somebody's life that they are perfectly aware of. And they're dealing with it. They're praying about it. They're trying to make progress. They are caught, but they know that they're caught. And in their heart, they want to change even though their actions aren't quite keeping up. And in that situation, we should leave that person alone unless they ask for our help. If they know they're caught and we're going around trying to unearth their life, reminding of their sin without their consent, that won't help much. Okay? Others, though are in a different situation. Others are caught. They are in the net. They are suffering the consequences. And here's the difference. They don't even realize it. They're caught. They're blinded to their sin. And that's what we're talking about here. That's the one thing that we have to figure out. Are they in the net and Do they know it or not? It's one thing to be in the net and know it because you can begin to form a plan as to how you're going to get out of the net and you can ask people to help and you can figure out a way and you can at least, you know, strategize a little bit. But if you're in the net and you don't even know it, you're acting as if nothing is wrong, that's the brother we're talking about, the sister we're talking about, headed for the proverbial cliff, right? And that's where we'll step in. Here's number three question in this first word. Will they listen to me? Generally speaking, if somebody has sinned against us personally, then they're probably not going to listen to us readily. There are all kinds of other texts in the Bible that deal with someone who has sinned against us personally. Matthew 18 would be one of those premier text that we should go to. When somebody has sinned against us, we go to that person, right? That's what Matthew 18 says. And if they don't listen to us, then we grab somebody else and we go to that person with somebody else. And if they still don't listen, then we grab some elders and we go to that person. And if they still don't listen, we take it in front of the church and we say, here's the situation, okay? That is how to deal with a relationship that where somebody has sinned against you personally. That's not really what we're talking about. We're not mending a broken relationship between people. We're trying to mend a brokenness between a person and God because sin has crept in. It has punched them from behind. And so I have to ask myself before I step into this situation, do I have the relationship with this person where they will listen? Where they will say, oh, I get it. I didn't even see that. Oh my goodness, thank you. And I'll tell you where those kind of relationships are present. It is outside this room. Those kind of relationships just can't happen in this room, in this setting on Sunday morning from 9 to 10 or 11 to 12. It just doesn't work. And it's super important that you have a group of people that is smaller than this room that we gather in on Sunday morning 
where you can develop some of these kind of relationships where you can go to somebody and they can come to you and you have this understanding and you know each other well enough that you will listen to each other. Whether it's a Sunday school class, whether it's a Bible study that you do during the week, whether it's a ministry group that you're involved with in some sort or or way, whether it's a fellowship group that you're a part of, you need to be a part of a group that is smaller than this room, even if it's the people that you sit by every Sunday in church. Develop some relationships outside this room where people can go and say, I see this in your life. And you'll listen because you know they care. And so when do I go? Well, we don't run in every time when we see somebody sin. It has to be repeated. There has to be some unawareness, some blindness. And the person has to be caught. And you need to be somebody that you think the person will listen to. That's when to do it. How about another word? Brothers. Brothers. We touched on this a little bit uh, ago. And this answers the question, whom do I go to? Whom do I go to? Uh, Here's what Paul writes. He starts out with this word, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. And almost for sure, in the context, we are talking about another person who is following Jesus. And so the question to ask is, is this person a believer? Are they part of the family of faith? Or not. In the Bible, there's a big distinction about how we are to respond as Christians to people who are believers and then to people who are unbelievers. The, the crazy thing that we do as Christians is that we sometimes go out into the world and we see people who aren't following Jesus and we somehow expect them to act as if they're following Jesus. That's craziness because they're not following Jesus. They're following their own appetites. They're not following God's desire. And all that means is that we just challenge them differently. We challenge them differently than somebody who has pledged allegiance to try to follow Jesus. And so right here in this text, Paul is only talking about Christians. Everybody say, okay. Okay. The reason that that's important, it's a very, it's a general rule. It's not an absolute. There are absolutely exceptions. But as a general rule, it is not good for Christians to confront non-Christians about their sinful behavior. Why? Because if we've learned anything in Galatians, we've learned this, that you can be really moral, you can check all the boxes of morality and still be lost if you do not have Jesus. And so the very first thing we need to ask a person is to challenge them, what have you done with the person of Jesus? If they're not a believer, that's where we need to start. Christianity is, before everything else, a relationship to a person. And before we can discuss with anybody how they should live, we have to ask this, what have you made of Jesus? Are you not a follower? Then I challenge you to get to know this person named Jesus. Are you a follower? Then I have some... some some help, some tips on how you can change your behavior, your life, your habits. Everybody say, okay, okay. Here's, here's another word, spiritual, spiritual. This answers the question, who should go? Who, sh- who is to go? And before I explain this, I want to, by show of hands, uh, who in the room, because they have followed Jesus, because they've been baptized, because they... Uh, have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, who in the room has the Holy Spirit in their life? There should be lots of hands, I would think, yes. 
Um, I want you to remember your answer, okay? Paul says, when a brother is heading for destruction, when a brother is caught in the web of sin, he says, then you who are spiritual should act. And right away, most of us believe that that automatically lets us off the hook because we think, oh, the spiritual people, that's the experts. Those are the people with the college degrees. Those are the people with reverend or bishop or elder or pastor in front of their names on stationery somewhere. And we are super quick to deny that we are spiritual people. We say, that no, that, that's not me. That's somebody who's at the elite level of the Christian life. And uh, surely that's what Paul is talking about. Let me tell you what Paul is talking about. He's talking about anybody who has the Holy Spirit. You are spiritual. Anybody who is trying to walk in line and keep in step with the Spirit, you are the spiritual ones that Paul is talking about. And so who should be responsible for helping a brother who is caught? That's anyone with the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit, would you raise your hand again? Yeah, that's you. It's you. It's me. Anyone who is trying to live the Christian life has this task. Another word. Restore. I love this word. It's a great word. It answers the question, why do I go? Why do I go and confront in a situation like this? Because I'm trying to restore. The word restore comes from the medical field. It's used when a broken bone is set back in place. And Paul grabs this word and uses it in a, a spiritual sense. I have never had a broken bone. How many of you have had broken bones in your life? Yes, I I should knock on wood or something like that. I have never had a broken bone. Uh, How many of you, is there somebody in the room that has actually had a broken bone that when it broke, you saw it? Oh, yes. On a scale of one to 10, how painful was that? 10, yes. Probably 12, like 15. Yes, okay. Bones out of place are incredibly, incredibly painful. And one of the things that Paul is trying to teach us here is about sin. We try to uh, frame sin up in a certain way. We frame it up as something that is like a bullet or a splinter that enters the body and we need to get rid of it. And so we talk like this, I need to quit X or I need to stop Y or I need to try to overcome Z. That's kind of how we talk about sin. But Paul says here... Here's a secret about sin. Sin is not like something that is utterly foreign to the body that needs to be thrown out. Sin is like a bone that absolutely should be in your body, but it's out of place. It's dislocated. A dislocated bone is something that belongs in your body. It's just not in the right place. And so our main problem is never about stuff that we should just quit doing. That's superficial. That's above the surface. Your main problem is that there are always good things that should be in your life that you have uh, pressed and they have become too important and now they are out of place. They are dislocated. It goes back to our discussion about the desires of the flesh up in chapter 5 verse 17. When those desires of the flesh, we, we talked about the epithumia, it means over-desires. It means taking a good gift that God has given us and making it an ultimate thing so that 
we try to get from it what it can never deliver. And so sex is a gift from God and it should be in your life within the right boundaries. But when we push those boundaries, we dislocate that good gift of God. We make it something that is destructive and painful. Career should be in your life. Family, relationships should be in your life. Control and comfort and approval. Those things should be in your life. But sometimes we get them out of bounds and we dislocate them. And everybody knows that that is painful when you have a bone that's out of place. And so the word restore means... That if you go to somebody and talk about their sin, if you go to somebody not afraid to confront, your goal is to restore. It's to put that bone, that dislocated thing back in place. It is to heal. And will it be painful? Absolutely. Because there's no way to put a dislocated bone back in place without it hurting. But it will be worth it because everything you're doing, your tone of voice, the way you say things, the time you choose to speak, the setting, everything will be designed to heal and not wound. Another word, this is the last one, watch, watch. And it answers the question, how do I go? How do I go? Paul says that when you go, you need to go with two things in mind. When you confront a brother in this situation, number one, go in a spirit of gentleness, is what Paul says. A brother who loves will confront gently and without malice. And this gentleness will come from the number two thing Paul says to do, and that is keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And that's a difficult thing to do, but it's very practical because we are to go in a winsome, we're going to to go in a loving way with the right motive and people, when we go with the wrong motive, they can kind of smell that a mile away. When we go to get revenge rather than to really restore. They know what's happening. And so do I have the right motive when I go? And Paul gives us a key to tell how the only way you can truly go to someone else in that kind of demeanor, that kind of spirit of gentleness with the right uh, motive is to truly understand and believe that you are capable of similar and equal sin yourself. Lest you too be tempted. So when I go, it is mandatory that I go in the knowledge that I am just as weak as this person that I'm trying to help. I am not better. I'm just not currently caught. Maybe I have been in the past and surely I will be in the future, but right now I'm not so I can help. And when that happens, when I'm caught in the future sometime, Maybe we should ask ourselves, how will I want somebody to come to me? Will I want somebody coming and shaking a finger at me? Or will I want somebody to come and say, I understand how you could have ended up in this place. I'm going to put my arm around you and we're going to do this together. We can get out of this together when we unite together. And if we're even remotely thinking better than thoughts, then we're back to provoking and we're back to envying. And it would be better if we just did not go. But when we go the right way, something can happen. We have the potential to reverse this story and save the one who is singled out, to save the one who is being caught. 
Um, I referenced the herd that was just outside of the picture earlier, and I want to pose a question. What if the herd that is invariably standing around watching this happen, what if they decided to unite together? What if they saw this one being singled out and attacked and they decided to do something about it? What if all of those pounds of buffalo united together and they started stampeding towards this lion? I want, you to, sh- I want to show you a picture of the story uh, being reversed. This is actually, this actually happens uh, in the African wild. Sometimes buffalo just come to the point where they've had enough and they see somebody being singled out and they band together. And literally this picture is taken, there were three or four shots, okay? This wasn't a video, it's just here's a picture, now it's a picture, there's a picture. And I left you, I spared you the gory pictures of when the buffalo actually catch up to the lion, okay? Let's just say that the buffalo had the lion for lunch that day. How to do nothing today means we restore without ruining. We restore brothers who are singled out and caught without ruining them. We're not afraid to confront, and we confront in truth, but with grace, and we can save another from death. Again, we'll we'll cover grace next week. John 3.16 is a very familiar verse to all of us. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's verse 17 that is the real meat of the passage. It says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's why Jesus came. He came to tell us the truth. And how did he tell us the truth? He wasn't afraid to tell me and you exactly what was going on. Go back to that first picture, Robin. You and I were this. We were caught in sin with no way out. Jesus says, you have sin in your life. He tells us the truth. You have not followed God. You've rebelled. You've become your own God. And you've done whatever was pleasing for you to do. And it has severed the relationship that the creator who made you wants to have with you. That's the truth. But then Jesus says, I didn't come here just to condemn you with the truth. I came here to do something about it. He told us exactly what was wrong, that we were more sinful than we could ever imagine. But then he said, like this perfect brother that he is, I'm here to help. I'm here to get you out of this net of sin. You're caught, but I'm going to help you and set you free. And so he went to a cross and he took your sin, my sin on himself so that we could be saved. He restored us. He took that dislocated part of us spiritually and put it right back into place and he reset our broken relationship that we have with God. And now because we are clothed in Christ, we are loved more than we can ever know. And so if our perfect brother... Jesus did that for us when we were caught, then our job is to do that same thing for others. That when they're caught, we go and we tell them the truth and we steer them back to the only person who can save them, and that's Jesus. I'm going to have the band come, and while they come, I want to give you your task for this week. I want you to imagine we're going to reverse the way we've been thinking 
today. We've been thinking from the per- perspective of somebody going and helping a brother, but I want you to put yourself in that situation where you are caught, where sin has crept up on you, you're unaware, and something has overtaken you, and I want you to deal with that proactively. Your task this week is to go to some group smaller than this room that you are a part of and single somebody out in that group, somebody that you trust, somebody that you have a relationship with. It could be somebody that you're sitting with right now. And I want you to tell them, would you watch out for me? Ask them, would you please tell me if there's some sin creeping up behind me that's about to overtake me? You have my permission to tell me exactly what you see. I may get mad, but I will listen, I promise, because I don't want anything dislocated in my life. Will you help me in that? That's your task. Because we can't do Christianity alone. We were never intended to. And God has put in place this place called the church, this group that when we hurt together, when we unite together, we are to remind ourselves and each other that sin has already been defeated. We are already victorious because of what Jesus has done. Father, I thank you that you give us the victory, that you give us a way out. And Father, when we see another person struggling with sin, when we see them overtaken, uh, how we respond actually tells us a lot about our own walk and our own journey and our own commitment to Christ. Help us not to be conceited in those situations because that will make it impossible for us to help. But help us to be humble and help us to be willing to go and tell the truth because that humbleness, that humility, going in love, going in truth, going in grace will bring life to them through Jesus and to us. And it's that life that we thank you for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. It is pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything about Jesus from the time he is a small child to the time he starts his ministry when he is about 30 years old. And only Luke includes a story in the, in, about Jesus' childhood. And in this text, this story that he chooses to include, he is 12. Jesus is 12. Presumably, Luke wrote because he was able to sit down with eyewitnesses, sit down with people who were really in these shoes and write from what they told him. So we assume that he sat down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he said, tell me everything. And Mary would have told him all the stories that she could recollect, all the stories of Jesus and his youth. And Luke decides to take this one. Why this one? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus, and it gives us some hints about his mission, even though he's 12. And so let's start this way. The text says that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and they were headed up to the Passover feast. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were uh, expected to attend. The Passover was one, the Pentecost feast was another, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three happened in Jerusalem. And all three were kind of required, but not everybody could afford to go to all three. And so if you only could choose one, it was always the Passover. The Passover was a week-long feast. It was kind of this national pride. It was kind of Fourth of July mixed in with a great family reunion with God at the center of everything that they did. And so Joseph packed up the minivan. He loaded all of his you know, kids, all of his family into... Uh, into the van and they get to Jerusalem and they spend this week with family and friends and they keep God at the center. They do everything that they're supposed to do on Passover. And then after about a week, they start heading home and just one problem, they get about a day's journey away and they start looking around and guess what? No, Jesus. Jesus is nowhere. He's missing. Wait a minute. He's not with you? I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. Where where in the world? And there's panic. And uh, we're told Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed in the text. They're in pain. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid, right? The first thing we see in the text is a lost Jesus. A lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has about this little story when they read it is, how in the world do you lose a kid? 
<laughs> in those days, people traveled, especially to feasts like this, to Jerusalem, in really big groups. Uh, families would have traveled together. Whole villages might have traveled together, and they would keep an eye on each other and everyone else's children. And one of the things that they did was the women and children would set the pace up front so that the pace wasn't too fast. And the men and the younger men would have stayed in the back. And what age is Jesus again? Twelve. That puts him right in the middle, right? And so there are times that he could have been up with the women and children. There are times that he could have been back with the men. And Mary thought he's one place and Joseph thinks he's another. And maybe both of them think, oh, he's with some other family. And that's how you lose a kid. That's a different way, right? It's not, not like we're loading up for a family vacation and we leave a kid at the gas station. Anyone? <laughs> when you think about that, Mary and Joseph seem like superstar compar- parents compared to some of, some of us. I, I, was in, I was in at least three different groups this last week, and uh, groups of people, and I asked them, because we, you know this was the story this week, I said, uh, give me a time that either you were a kid and were lost, or give me a time where you were in charge of a kid and you, you lost a kid. And I had teachers say, oh yeah. There's this one time we were on this trip and this kid, man, and it was a whole fiasco. And I had a grandparent say, yeah, my grandchild came over and couldn't find him. And, and uh, I had uh, moms and dads. There was nobody that was, that was without a story. Everybody's had a time where they've lost a kid or they've been lost. Um, Jamie is our ministry administrator. And uh, she told a story on her husband, Bob. And uh, I will relate it to you today and get Bob in trouble uh, because it's not a stellar day for Bob. Way back when, uh, their oldest, Kyle, was maybe kindergarten, first grade. And he was, uh, Bob was playing softball at the time, so they played over on the fields over here at the college. And he decided to take Kyle with him because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle was playing in the playground, Bob's playing softball, and of course, you know, it's, it's a great game and, you know, he makes the winning play or whatever. And, and uh, he's so excited, he gets in the car and he goes home and, and he bursts through the door and he tells Jamie about this monumental hit that he had and the great way that he won the game. And she said, that's wonderful, honey. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And uh, he headed out here, obviously frantic, panicked, right? He got there and no Kyle. Kyle is gone. In the meantime, Kyle has decided nobody's here. Everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. Little kindergarten, first grader. They lived over in uh, about the 700 block of Crawford or Judson, I think, somewhere in there. Okay, so that's quite a hike for a kindergarten first grader. He found Dairy Queen somehow, <laughs> which, is, which is now the butcher block, but it used to be Dairy Queen. And he knew that if he found Dairy Queen and he went a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he would stumble onto some houses that eventually that he would recognize. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Jamie said during that trip where they had lost Kyle, this was before cell phones. So they're trying to, you know, call one another from pay phones and the home phone and the home phone's tied up because Jamie's calling the prayer chain and the prayer chain is all activated. And, and uh, Ron Billiard, one of our elders, was even there on their, on their front porch praying for, you know, that they would find Kyle. It was a whole deal. And let's just say it wasn't a great day for Bob, okay? <laughs> and 
It's one thing, no offense to Kyle, no offense to Bob and Jamie, it's one thing to lose a kid in Fort Scott, America, right? But to lose the Son of God. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have been feeling. They would have been beating themselves up, right? They would have been blaming themselves. They're their own worst critics. And the, 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 the way you lose the Son of God is the way you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob was thinking of the great play. Bob was thinking of the dramatic way that they won the game. Bob was thinking of the, you know, the thing that that guy said to him and what he said back. And, and all of a sudden he's at home and he's missing a kid. We get distracted. And it's not just Mary and Joseph that get distracted and lose the Son of God. We get distracted, right? And we lose the Son of God sometimes. It's difficult to find Jesus when we are distracted. Sometimes it's the world that distracts us, those forces that pull us away from God and His will and His kingdom. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life that distracts us. We have all of these things that we try to pack into the day and we come to the end of it and we realize, oh, God wasn't a part of the day. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we can do. We do stuff for God. We do ministry for God. But we get so busy doing those good things for God that we forget that God is the reason we're doing these things in the first place. And we miss Him. We lose Jesus. Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful and devout Jewish people did. They were going to Jerusalem to observe this religious festival. And in in the middle of this religious pilgrimage that is designed to refocus people on God, they lose God. It's possible. So the question is, what do we do when we lose God? And I want you to take a look at what, just first, what Joseph and Mary do. It's something pretty instinctual. They head back to Jerusalem. Bob head back, headed back to the softball fields, right? The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph actually go back to the beginning. We could say that because the temple was where Mary and Joseph, Jerusalem itself was where Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was first born to dedicate him to God. And that's pretty good advice for us too, to go back to the beginning. And there are two possible ways that we can go back to the beginning. There's one blank in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to give you two options for that blank. You just pick the one that applies to you today. The first word we could write there is repent. Repent. If there's a biblical concept for going back to the beginning, it would be this word, repentance. Repentance is all about going back. It's about turning around and going a different way. It's about going back to where we started, back to the basics of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going back to that. To say, you know what, God, I've been distracted by all of this other stuff, but I'm going back to where I started. I believe that life is in you and not in any of these other things. So I'm going to put you in the center of everything that I do. There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of Christian life is repentance. The thing that we fall into, the trap, is that when we throw out this word repentance, a lot of us, a lot of us hear that word and we think failure. But I need you to think training when you hear that word. Repentance isn't about failing. Repentance is about training. Repentance is about getting up and saying, God, I commit this day all over to you again, and hopefully I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. That's what repentance is about. That's why it's every day. That's why all of Christian life is about repentance. So the other option for that blank is church. Church. 
Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple. They dedicate him to God. That was the right thing to do according to the law. And when they lose him 12 years later, ironically, they find him in the very place where they started. So we could ask ourselves that same question. How about us? When we lose Jesus, where do we go? Maybe we should go back to the beginning. So tell me, go back to the beginning in your mind. How did you learn about Jesus? How did you learn about the saving grace of Jesus? Let me jog your memory and remind you of probably how you didn't learn of the saving grace of Jesus. You didn't learn it from a building. Oh, these, these buildings are great. Community Christian Church is a great place. It's a great building. But it's not the church. The church is God's people, right? And if you go back to the beginning and you think about how you were given this message of the saving grace of Jesus, it always involved a person. It was a person saying to you, here's what Jesus meant to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. I think he can be your savior too. It always goes back to a person and that's the church. And when we lose God, the odds are well overwhelming that we'll be able to find him again in the pew, right? In the communion table. We'll be able to find him again in an old hymn or maybe a new song. Why? Because the other people who are trying to find him also are there with us. That's how the church is supposed to work. And so when we lose Jesus, go back to the beginning. Maybe we should do both. Maybe we should repent. And maybe we should go back to his people, the church. And so Mary and Joseph go back. They go back to the beginning. It took them a day to return to the city, Jerusalem. It probably took them another day to find Jesus. And so they are three days in at this point. And after searching, what they find is a learning Jesus, a learning Jesus. He's found in the temple. And in the temple, in some corner of it, he's in the middle of a circle. And there are Jewish teachers and rabbis. And he is part of that circle and he is asking them questions and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that the teachers are amazed at both his questions and his answers. They are thunderstruck by the deep comprehension that this 12-year-old Jewish boy is displaying. He's not the normal uh, kid at Hebrew school, right? Okay. And um, the thing that we need to avoid here as we picture this in our minds, we need to avoid this thought that the little boy Jesus is sitting around straightening out his elders, like pointing a finger, straightening out the teachers of the law and the rabbis. That's not what's happening here. The text does not say anything like that. It just says he was listening and asking questions. And that fits. Why? Because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And so the teachers and the rabbis are amazed. And if we were writing this, we would write it this way. They were blown away. There was somebody else that stumbled upon that scene, and they were also blown away. It was not the rabbis and teachers. It was Mary and Joseph. And they are blown away in a little different sense. This is mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of my eye sockets kind of way. 
right? And now I finally found you, and what the heck are you doing to me? How can you do this to me, right? And dad is with her, and he just wants mom to get her son back, so she's not, you know, uh, frantic. And um, so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear, and Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And this frightened, panicked, upset mom says what a mom would say in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? There's a little bit of uh, mom guilt and shame there put on like only moms can do. And then she says, after all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, right? Nobody has a mom like that, right? She saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's kind of the first century equivalent to wait, just wait till your father gets home. That, that's what's going on here. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to that phrase, your father. And that's why I'm making a big deal of it. And he begins in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And he says, you should know who I am. You should know that I must be, or you should know that it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and depending on your translation, it says uh, my father's business or my father's house or my, my father's things. Those, that word, whatever it is in your translation, is not in the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, do not you know that in the father of me I must be? In other words, it wasn't the temple that was the thing. It was God. The temple isn't the important part. God is the important part. Jesus is emphatic. I've got to be about learning about my Father. I've got to know God who is in heaven because He is my Father, and this is my chance to do so. And in this this one sentence, Jesus makes this distinction between Joseph, who is His adopted Father, and God in heaven, who is His real, true Father. At age 13... Every Jewish boy goes through um, a celebration where he is introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. And you probably know, you've probably heard about what that celebration is and what it's called. It's called a bar mitzvah. Yes. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And when a, when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through this bar mitzvah so that he can literally from then on become a son of the commandment. And from that point on, the full responsibilities of the law that, gave Moses, that God gave Moses are upon his shoulders. And he is now officially an adult. It's odd that we never look back at the life of Jesus and think about him having a bar mitzvah. But surely he did. But Luke doesn't include that story. He includes this one. And it's a year before that would have happened. He's 12, right? And the thing that we need to understand is that for the year prior to the bar mitzvah, that there was something that a Jewish father would do to prepare his son for that day when he was 13 and he would become a son of the commandment. The Jewish fathers would prepare their sons for that step that was coming. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been out the, at this with Jesus. So it was an intense time of, of training and focus. And Joseph would have said to Jesus, here's how to be a man. 
and here's what it means to work, and here's how, what it means to follow God. Here's what it means to pray. Jesus probably learned more about carpentry that year than any year, probably more about life that year than any year he had so far, probably more about God than any other year. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the Passover, to this celebration, to the temple at age 12 would have been most appropriate. He would have said, this is the temple, son. And this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. And this is the Passover. And this is what the Passover means. And this is what the Passover lamb means. And this is who we are as a people of God. And this intense mentoring happened the whole year when they were 12. And maybe we should pause there and just ask, Dads, are you that? Are you being intentional with your sons? Are you saying, you have what it takes? Here's how to navigate life. Here's how to be a man. Dads, are you being intentional with your daughters? You're beautiful. I love you. You're the princess of the world. And here's how to navigate life. And here's how to be steered back to the only person that can really give us life at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, You'll always find life in Him. Are, you, are we intentional about steering our kids in that direction? And so it was a normal thing for Jewish dads to do for their sons. And that has to make us pause. Because Mary says, your father and I, and he, she's meeting Joseph, were distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus responds this way. You should know I'm here on earth for my real father. One of the other unusual things that the Passover would have brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and teachers and theologians in the Jewish world. They would have all descended on Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these scholars would have no doubt assembled at the temple and they would have uh, gathered together to teach and discuss great truths among themselves. Uh, Think about it as a conference, right, that we would go to. It was kind of that feel. And so we can imagine Jesus stumbling into that and one of the, you know, he's reading through the program. One of the breakout sessions is Messiah. You know, let's talk about the Messiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I should probably go to that. Even though they didn't ask me to speak, I'm kind of bummed. But so he would go and uh, he is this 12-year-old kid, but he's the Messiah. He is unknown to any of these rabbis, these great teachers, but he is observe, uh, absorbing and learning infinitely more than he ever could in Nazareth and infinitely more than even Joseph could have ever taught him. And so here's, here's the thought. And this... Full disclosure here, this is, this is conjecture a little bit. We're reading between the lines here, but it's a guess, but it makes sense. And I think Jesus actually even does hint at it. What if in the 12-year-old life of Jesus, God, his heavenly father, was doing the same thing that his earthly father was trying to do? What if God, his real father, is taking that 12th year and being intensely strategic about it, focusing on Jesus on becoming that son of the commandment. What if God himself is teaching Jesus? What if Joseph, as he's walking around Jerusalem, is teaching Jesus, and yet God is coming behind that teaching and going a million levels deeper? What if Joseph is saying, 
This is the temple. And this is why we worship. And this is what we do here. And this is how we relate to God. And God, the true Father, comes in behind that teaching and says, You are the temple. You're the real temple that's going to destroy this one, to make it obsolete. What if Joseph is walking around Jerusalem and saying, hey, there's history on these streets. King David walked on these streets and he turned all of the history of Israel. And the real Father God is coming in behind that and saying, Jesus, you also will walk on these streets and all of history will, will pivot because of what you're going to do on these streets. But it will mean that you'll carry a cross as you walk on them. And almost surely, uh, Joseph would have led his family through the Passover meal. And the, the culmination of that Passover meal was the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was... Uh, a, a reference to what happened in Egypt where the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people so that none of their firstborn would die. And Joseph did a great job of leading his family through that remembrance. And what if God came in behind and said to Jesus, see that lamb? You are that lamb. There's another lamb that has to die so that other people will live even though they die and you are that lamb. God is steering Jesus, being intentional to make the most of an opportunity. And that makes sense, right? The temple makes sense. And so he's learning. And he's learning really well from the Father. Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God no one gets. He's talking in ways no one talks. He's saying, my father, my father, over and over. And no one talks like that. No one, that's a radical, radical concept. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books and only 14 times is God referred to as father. And every one of those times, it is in reference to a nation, like he is the father of the Jewish nation, not never about individuals. He's never a father to individuals. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, even at verse 12, or age 12, and he says, I love my father. It's my father. That's why I'm here. And he's saying it in reference to daddy. He's, he's saying, my father is so relatable to me. My God is so relatable to me. He's like a daddy that I could crawl crawl up in his lap and say anything to, share anything with. And Luke is telling us here that Jesus had a relationship to God unlike anyone else ever. Jesus is going to make it possible for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God. And there is no way at this point that anybody understands that. The rabbis, the teachers, they're confused. They're blown away. His parents, Jesus, Joseph... And Mary, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're blown away. Nothing has changed. Jesus still confounds us today. He doesn't fit into the boxes that we kind of create for God and say, this is how God should be. This is what God should do. Jesus does not fit into those norms. He always brings new learning into our lives, new paradigms. And I can't fit him because it's difficult to fit Jesus when he brings the unexpected. And that's what we see at every turn. He confounds the experts by talking about God in ways they've never thought of. He does that to us. Things that don't fit how we think God should be. We look around at our world and it's confusing to us when good people face horrible circumstances. Anybody? Yeah. 
That's confusing. God, that doesn't fit with a loving God. We look around our world and it's confusing to us that he says he is just. God says, I am a just God. And yet we look around and we see evil people ruling the day. How does that work? That doesn't fit in my box of what God should do and what God should be about. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms. We don't get that. That doesn't fit the God that we want. It's confusing to us when God says there's a point to all suffering. And yet when we look around, all we can see is seemingly pointless suffering. Anybody read about Branson this week? Man, why God? That doesn't fit after all we've done for you. We get this in return and we want to use Mary's words in times like these. What are Mary's words? How can you treat me like this? This isn't what God should be about. It's confusing. It's mystifying. It's painful. It's disheartening. And it summons a crucial question. And this question is the hinge point. If we get it right, then we're good. If we get it wrong, we are lost. And the question is, why should I trust a God who doesn't fit into the box that I want to create? The God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or do. Why should I trust him? And some people in our world just immediately say, I can't trust him. I can't trust a God like that. I won't trust a God like that. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to something else. But in this text, I want, I want to show you why we can. Why we can trust a God who doesn't fit our concept of what a God should be. It's because we see, number three in this text, a loving Jesus. A loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have old school and, uh, you know, the words of Jesus are in red. These are the very first ones. He's 12 years old. He says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know who I am? It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's a clear tension between who his real father is and who his adopted father is. And there's a huge theological bomb here because Joseph might be an adoptive father, but make no mistake, I am not Joseph's son. I am God's son. I am the son of God. And here in the first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus understands clearly who he is. Is. Now think about what that means. I want you to do so by going back to your 12-year-old self. Go back to when you were 12 years old. What were you wearing? <laughs> what was your hair like? Who were you with? What issues did you have with the authority figures in your life? What issues did you have with your parents that they just didn't get, right? And what 12-year-old on the planet wouldn't want to be God's son. Every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. One of the phrases I would rattle off as a parent when my kids kind of got out of bounds and they tried to rule a little more than they should in our house, I would say something along these lines, God put big people with little people for a reason and I'm big and you're small and one day that will change but it's not today so you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? Um, when you're big, you can make the rules, but that's how it works. But I want you to think about trying to say that to Jesus. Joseph trying to say, hey, I'm the big person here and you are, oh, wait a minute, you're actually bigger. 
wait a minute, I'm the older person, the wiser person here, and you're just, oh, wait a minute, you're actually older than I am and infinitely wiser than me. I'm the authority here and you're going to, wait a minute, you made everything that there is to make. You made everything that we see. And Jesus is the only human being ever to be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I really am the authority. I made everything that you see. And I will be making decisions around here because I'm older than you. My way goes because I'm actually really in control of everything. That's where Jesus was. And so what you have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was and yet without missing a beat, he also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house could also be, it is necessary. And it has a parallel later in the book of Luke. At the end of the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, he will include a story and he will use this phrase again. Jesus will, it's in red letters there too. There are two guys that have just ironically come from the Passover feast. And it's the very Passover feast where Jesus has been hung on a cross and crucified. And they have looked at him as Savior and the hope of all Israel. And now he is dead. He's hanging on a cross. And they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they have no hope. They are disheartened. And all of a sudden, a third traveler pops in and starts walking with them. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. It's resurrected Jesus. And they start telling this newcomer, What has happened in Jerusalem as if he didn't know? Did you hear what happened? All hope is lost. Our Savior, Jesus, was hung on a cross. And he was, we banked everything on him. And now there's nothing left. We're not sure what to do. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he says, oh, foolish people. (laughs) You're so slow. And he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to these two guys in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, all the things about himself and what it was necessary that he do. And so in chapter 2, you have mom and dad, it is necessary that I be about my father. And in chapter 24, you have guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here, even at the beginning in 12-year-old Jesus, is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he was to do. He was God in the flesh. He was creator of everything, maker of the very parents that were in front of him, infinite power behind this face full of pimples. And yet, what does it say in verse 51? It says that the word of life, the Logos, the one who spoke everything into existence, went home. And what's the word? Submitted. Maybe your translation says, obeyed the parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust. That's why you should trust this God. Because he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose uh, chose this story. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in the same spot. He doesn't have to hang on a cross, but he does it anyway. He doesn't have to obey, but he does it anyway. And this time his obedience is not to earthly parents. It's to his heavenly father. 
And he says, it is necessary that I hang on a cross so that others can live. It is necessary that I obey so that others could find the obedience to God that they can never live up to. And that's love. Love is to be in a position where nothing is required of us, and yet we do it anyway for the sake of someone else. And that's, that's a superhero, right? That's Jesus. That's a God worthy of my trust. And the Creator loved me when there was no reason to, and it's so difficult to forget Jesus when He obeys the Father for me, especially knowing what that meant. Father, I thank You that You have...